Deidre Darst, speech therapist and autism mom, joins us on the podcast today. She is also an alumni of our autism course called Help Me Find My Voice. She shares with us her experience as a speech therapist, how her son Colin was diagnosed with autism, how she was very hesitant when somebody suggested that ABA might help, and her experiences now, and why parent education and parent training is so very vital for us as speech language pathologists. Make sure that you tune in. This is one you're not going to want to miss. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 14 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I'm here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. Today, we have Deidre Darst. Thanks so much for joining us, Deidre. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for having me. And Deidre is a speech therapist and an autism mom. And we actually got to know each other because she took our autism course called Help Me Find My Voice. And it was a while ago. Was it a year or two ago that you took the course? Yeah, probably two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was great. And actually, you live in an area that was close to where my brother had lived. um, And so we connected on that level too. But it was really great to have you in the course. And we've just kind of corresponded ever since. So I'm excited to have you on today to share your experiences in the autism world and as being a speech therapist. So can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into being an SLP and into the autism world? So I've been an SLP now almost 11 years, and I started out in private practice, and probably half of my caseload was autistic kids, and they were always my favorite. Like, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites, but you do. You just don't talk about it. (laughs) But my son, so I have two little boys, and my second son was born in 2014, and he was diagnosed with autism at three. So then I just jumped on the autism bus and haven't stopped since. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so, wow. So diagnosed at three. Were you guys, did you, were there some different characteristics that he was demonstrating that made you think that maybe he he did have autism or were you guys doing early intervention? I know every state is different as far as services and things like that, but can you tell us a little bit about that journey? I know there are a lot of parents who, you know, are concerned, you know, maybe their child has a speech delay or maybe their child has autism and kind of, you know, how that process worked for you. Um, so yes, I'm in West Virginia and we do have early intervention, um, birth to three. I was actually a birth to three therapist at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did not have him officially in, but I was working with him constantly. I honestly saw signs when he was about six months old. He was a horrible sleeper until he was four. Lots of belly problems. He couldn't eat a lot of foods. We had him tested for allergies. He just, it's like he hit that 12 month developmental level and then just plateaued. And he wasn't regressing, but he wasn't making progress either. And at that point, I started to go to the pediatrician and say, you know, I have concerns. And they just kind of wrote me off, which that's kind of what I wanted to hear, honestly, like, oh, it's something he'll outgrow. And it was just like this internal struggle that I had for about two and a half years. 
And finally, when I realized he did have some sensory issues, like that was the big light bulb because I had missed those. And my best friend is an OT. So I had asked her, hey, he does these things. Like, what is up? And when she started to explain grounding and all those terms that I didn't know, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, he needs like real therapy, not just mommy therapy. Mm -hmm. So that's when I enrolled him in birth to three. He was about two and a half. So he got about eight months of that before he aged out. Oh, okay. And then when he turned three, did he go into a public school program or you, I know you utilize ABA services, but did he go into a public school program? I, I, one year I was, it was the coolest job. I was a preschool therapist and that's all I did. So I worked with students who had speech sound disorders and I worked with autistic students, but I really loved that idea of having typical peers in classes with students with autism and having them be role models and, and all that great stuff. I really loved that year. And there was so much growth at that area. I know you can probably attest to that being an early intervention therapist. But part of me really kind of misses that. I do have a couple little guys that I see on my and girls on my caseload for my private practice. But there's something really magical about that time of early intervention in preschool because you see such growth with with the children in their language. I do. I actually, I work in preschool now in the school and they're my favorite. I mean, I like all the kids, but preschool's just, it's fun. He did not go into preschool. I just, he was my baby and I couldn't send him to school knowing that he couldn't communicate. He he wasn't potty trained. I mean, there were just so many things. He is a runner. (laughs) So we, we tried outpatient therapies and I, because I had been an outpatient therapist, I knew what that looked like. And it was a lot of sitting at the table and doing drill work. And I knew he wasn't ready for that type of therapy, but I also felt guilty if I didn't have him in something. So we did OT, we did speech, we did music therapy. And then really just like, I was still kind of on that early intervention mode, like language bombardment and everything was therapy to me. It was exhausting, (laughs) but we did floor time. We actually took him to Maryland and we saw Jake Greenspan. Oh, wow. Yeah. We did the the Stanley Greenspan courses and we did that for a really long time. Loved it. So yeah, his therapy happened mostly at home until he was about four. Oh, wow. That's great. You know, Jesse Ginsburg was on and she has Mm -hmm. done um, extensive work with with Greenspan as well. And she talked about that a lot on episode four. That was my first interview. So that was really fun to talk with her. Okay. And I feel like I've been to a training on that and understand that it's more child-led and play-based. And okay, so so you guys took some of the courses, you actually went out there and well, that's really great. Immerse yourself in the information and then we're applying it and then use that for a while and then started to utilize when did you start utilizing applied behavior analysis then to kind of shape up his communication or help his emerging him as an emerging communicator? He was almost four. We access to ABA where we live is horrid. I mean, there's right. just, we don't have enough BCBAs. So we were on a waiting list about six months. Mm. Um, he was almost four and he still did not really have communication. I mean, he could pull me into the kitchen and scream. And mm. then I would, if he threw a cup at me, I knew that meant he was thirsty. Yeah. Um, but I had tried some different AAC things and he just, he would stem. He would just right. push the buttons. And like, if I knew he liked movies, so I put all of his favorite movies on there. And then we would sit and hear Moana, 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 Moana. <laughs> At that point, he couldn't leave the house. 
I mean, um, transitions were very difficult. Just anything new was hard. And somebody recommended ABA and, you know, complete transparency. I went, ew, no, thank you. (laughs) Right, Um, right. Because I had this idea in my head of what ABA was and I was wrong. we, it's really hard for me to admit that, but no, no, I think it's good to talk about. I mean, that's why I think the reason I, I even knew about you too, I, I don't know if you wrote a blog for Asha or something in the Asha Leader about, I don't know if you were on some kind of task force or because you live in West Virginia. I know at the time, probably when your son needed services, there probably weren't as many providers. So do you find it was hard for you to find a provider at the time or? Well, yes. And honestly, I I feel like my career path as a speech language pathologist just put me in the right places at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I just made the right friends and a coworker of mine. Um, she was Collins music therapist and she recommended this particular clinic and it's about an hour from our house. But she said, if you go there, they are going to change your mind about what ABA is. And I really respected her. And I thought, if she says this, then okay. I went in a little apprehensive, but we went, we toured, we talked to the director and they sold me on the fact that they did parent trainings Mm -hmm. and they were going to have a training on doctor visits and haircuts and going to the dentist And those were all things that we could not do at the time. And we walked out of there and I looked at my husband and I said, he's going here. Like, I don't care what we have to do. He will be here. If I have to sell your kidney. (laughs) And the joke is he only has one kidney anyway. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but he, so we were on a waiting list for about six months and then it has just been life changing. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Just to hear about the process and to take a chance. I mean, an hour away and just how that, you know, modifies your family schedule. I'm sure it's something that's very important to you and everybody that lives in your household. And it's really great that you've been able to access, you know, that you had a really great start with floor time and that was helpful. And you're able to go visit them and get that training. The fact that you're a speech therapist, I know we inherently just kind of do therapy even when we're not realizing it. And then to be able to access those types of services. And you talk about going to the dentist and all those different and that sleep was an issue. And I know in some of the specialized programs that I've worked in, we have always had a parent training component. And I think that's so very important. And there's somebody right now, I provide some professional mentorship and I'm I'm mentoring some SLPBCBAs who are starting to implement ABA into their clinics. And that's a big part of what they do is that parent training component. And so we always talk about that because I think that piece of the puzzle, I always say my biggest job as a therapist is not actually the therapy. It's actually the ongoing communication with the team, with the team being the the parents being so very important, which you know, as a speech therapist, sometimes in a public school, in, in anywhere you work, you're always kind of like, am I doing what's best? You know, like, is the parent happy? I don't know if, the, if I'm the only one that thinks those things. But I always kind of struggle with that. But I know that if I have that ongoing communication, I'm setting down that foundation to have that collaborative relationship that when things go really great, we can celebrate them. And then when things are not going so great or we hit a roadblock that we can work together as a team. And it sounds like you're in a really collaborative place and have that relationship with your providers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is something that before being on the parent side, I don't think I really understood that. I thought, oh, therapy. You bring them into me, I work with them and work this little therapy magic and they go home and yay, everyone's happy. And then I was just seeing that 30 minutes, you know, 30 minutes a week. 
And I didn't see the fact that their their kids didn't sleep and they didn't eat anything and they couldn't leave the house and school was difficult. And now that I've been on this side of it, I feel like I can relate to parents so much more because I live it every day too. And I just realized the importance of that collaboration and that really parents have to become the therapist. And that is like my big soapbox right now, because I, where we're doing virtual therapy through school right now, I actually get to see parents every week. And it's just been really nice to have the parents sit there and watch us do therapy. And then, you know, they know how to do it now and they can do it the rest of the week too. Yes, I love that. I know that when teletherapy started with the pandemic, I was thinking, wow, this is a lot of parent contact. And I bet for some therapists that might make them a little nervous. But I think in the long run, it's really great because even if you write a really detailed progress note, and even if you have ongoing communication with the parents, like I do for certain students that I see, it's hard for parents to actually visualize like what is happening in speech therapy? What is speech therapy for my child, what does it look like? And I think that it helped us kind of give them a visualization of this is what it is. This is what we're working on. This is the relationship I have with your child. And these are potentially some of the things that you can help generalize to home. So I agree that part of it, I really, really like because especially being a school-based therapist, there's some parents, even if I have ongoing communication, it might be an email, it might be the progress note. It's not the same as that weekly touch point, even of just saying hi as they turn the camera on. So I think think that's really, really good to um, point that out. And it's nice that you have that parent training and those specialized services. I know you said your son was having trouble with sleep and, you know, limited diet for some students that potentially were working with. And one of the things that I always thought was so amazing that we did, I worked at an ABA center for almost 20 years until I just got too busy with ABA speech. But we had somebody that would come in and give the students haircuts and they were specially trained in providing haircuts for autistic students. And I always remember thinking like, this is amazing. Like for some of our students, that was such a struggle. And I would do speech like helping, you know, the RBT take the student to get their haircut, or we would take a picture of them getting their haircut and talk about it in therapy. Because I think that we don't really understand the struggles that parents have to do some of those everyday things. Like you said, going to the dentist, sleeping, going to the doctor, getting a haircut, where if your child is typically developing, maybe that is not a struggle. But if you have an autistic child, that can really be such a barrier to them accessing the community. And it's really nice that you've had that those services to help with that. Well, and our clinic is amazing. They practice. So they've practiced haircuts. And then I can go in after they've worked on it. And then they teach me how to do it. And we actually, Colin just got a haircut this weekend. And he went in and I thought, oh no, this is going to be bad. And then I thought, what am I doing? And I pulled out his timer. We talked about it. I said, we are going to set a timer for a minute and we're going to get your haircut. And, you know, we talked whole social story, talked through it. And then when the one minute timer went off, he said, set the timer. So we set it again and he got his whole haircut in one big go. We didn't stop. We had no tears. That was his first haircut in a salon in four years. Wow. So, and the last time he was two or three, I made my husband do it alone. (laughs) I just can't because it was just, it was so, it was awful for him. It was awful for me. We all cried. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then this time he watched himself in the mirror and he made silly faces. And it's because he's practiced that. 
And the same with going to the dentist. Um, His RBT actually goes to the dentist with us. So it's, I see ABA, it's like therapy for life. Like Mm -hmm. anything you need help with, ABA can do it. Right, absolutely. And and we haven't talked about that yet on the podcast, but it has applications for everything. Just like when we get off the podcast here today, I'm going to work out, but I already have on my workout clothes because I'm ready, right? It's like the path of least resistance. If I'm ready, if I have my gym shoes on, if my gym is now in my basement, like it's going (laughs) to happen, right? Instead of having to go 45 minutes away. And yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I love that you've seen the power of applied behavior analysis and that it's been so helpful. I love that story about him getting his hair cut and... And yeah, I'm sure that was so just draining emotionally to not be able to do those types of things. So that's really exciting. Thanks for sharing that. And I know today what we're going to talk about, you know, some is a little bit about, you know, interprofessional collaboration between SLPs and BCBAs. And I know that you said when you were a speech therapist and just the thought of potentially having your son do ABA or receive ABA services kind of had a bad taste in your mouth from maybe some of the myths that you thought about applied behavior analysis. So tell me, so what are some of the ways that you think SLPs and BCBAs can learn from each other and work together to help support our students? So I think we are actually much more alike than we realize. I feel like when I uh, I videoed Colin's session a couple of weeks ago, because he was doing what I consider speech tasks, you know, yeah. and I watched it and I thought, this just looks like speech therapy. I mean, it it's exactly what I would do with any other kid, exactly the same way. And I shared that with people because, you know, we are using a lot of those strategies and we don't know it because we're just not calling it ABA. We're just saying, oh, this is positive reinforcement. This is shaping or whatever. So I think we just need to listen to each other a little more and not be on the defensive. And like I said, I was very much on the defensive years ago. But now that I've seen, I know what we can do. And I know what they can do. And I know what you can do because you're both. Um, <laughs> that if we just work together, that we, we're going to help our clients so much more than if we're resistant and think that, you know, if I think I have all the answers and I won't listen to anything that you've seen or done, then that really just holds me back too as a therapist. Absolutely. And there, you know, I teach this class in ethics for people becoming BCBAs. And one of the articles that we talk about is how to collaboratively work with people from other disciplines. And I think what's really hard, especially for school-based therapists, is that if a BCBA is called into a case, I would say maybe not anymore, but I'd say 90% of the time a BCBA might be coming in when things are already in crisis mode. And so everybody, and I'm just talking as a school-based person, sometimes people might just be automatically on the defense because maybe what we're doing is not working or the student needs something different. And so having somebody come in from an, as an outside consultant, and I work with, I actually collaborate with BCPAs all the time as the speech therapist, because I am a school-based speech therapist. And so I completely understand that. And I think that that's a really hard time where Most of the times you might be meeting a BCBA for the first time and we're in crisis mode, you know, and I train in this class that a lot of the times BCBAs might get a bad rap because maybe a speech therapist or an OT may bring up a strategy and then a BCBA may say, well, what's your research behind that? Where's the science? And um, this article says there's this whole decision-making tree, which I won't talk about and bore you guys. 
But, you know, they say that line of, well, what's the research behind that? Just automatically that being the first thing that we say on either side of the table erodes the professional relationship. And I always like that phrase because I always try to approach every single person on the team just like I do a client. I want to build rapport with you. I want to know what you like to do. I want to know what makes you tick. I think the other thing that's good too is being able to observe each other work. Um, and you mentioned that with Colin. I think it's cool to see other speech therapists doing speech therapy because it's not something we get to see often. And then I really like to see BCBAs working with the students too, because we can learn from each other. Maybe I'm going to learn a tip or strategy that's going to help the student not have as many behavioral barriers during a session. And maybe the BCBA is going to learn something about how to use a student's augmentative communication device or the reason why we're using a certain app and things like that. So has that been helpful to kind of have, you know, all those different eyes and being able to uh, collaborate like that? Oh, absolutely. I am. Well, I think too, like, when we were in OT, I would see the things that they would do and then we would come home and I would do it. So we borrow from other professions all the time. And I feel like our ABA team, they are my go-to. Like if I've tried something and it doesn't work or I have no idea what to do, they see him almost as much as I do during the right. day. So I can send them a message and say, hey, we are having trouble with whatever. And then they problem solve it with me. And I think that is just having an open mind and saying, you know what, this isn't working. What can we do? And yeah, I think we just, if we listen and work right. together, we're going to come out ahead, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that collaborative relationship with the entire team, I think is what's so important because just like you said, you're kind of going to the team if you have a question about something. And I know when I was working in non-public placements, kind of maybe where your son is, is getting his um, services right now, that you really do know so much. You know about the family dynamic, you know, you know about the siblings, you know, the kids sleep schedule, you know, when they go to the bathroom, what they're having trouble with, what they eat for lunch, you know, like you really have this really clear picture because it is really kind of an intense type of service. And so you are able to help the student. And I do love that that parent piece where you're able to use them as a sounding board. That's really great. So when you took Help Me Find My Voice, our autism course, what were some of the things that were helpful for you? Like when you took the course, were you already, was Colin already receiving ABA? Or did it help you? I've had some parents who were not speech therapists just say that it was helpful to kind of learn some of the terms and kind of learn about the services and what what were some of the things from the course that were helpful for you? I think I took the course probably just right after he started ABA. I remember I took your course and I read uh, Mary Barbera's Verbal Behavior book. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Uh, and honestly, I went into it as a parent feeling like, okay, I know nothing. Now help me. <laughs> right. Um, because I feel like you you take in information a little differently when it's your own child because I could, you know, if I'm just going in for a general class and I don't have a specific client in mind, I listen, but I'm not necessarily thinking, oh, I can use that right now. But when it was my kid, mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I need to learn all these things because we have all this stuff we need to work on. And learning the terminology was like just life-changing as a therapist because I find myself now when I write goals and like just in my head planning therapy, I'm like, introverbals. Let's, let's work <laughs> on text. <laughs> right, right. Yes. So I, it, it just makes sense to me. 
Right. It is very different. And actually, I just share that as a freebie on Instagram. I share like a Friday freebie. And when I was first starting ABA Speech, I came up with a ebook, but it has all the different terms. And I know that some of those terms are really foreign to people. And I think that's one of the barriers, as simple as it seems, but you know, that we as speech therapists may call it labeling and a BCBA may say tact and There's way more that goes into it than that. But I think some of those things, I talk about that a lot where I'll be in a meeting. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. And somebody will bring up... Actually, I remember I was in a meeting like maybe two years ago and I was with a BCBA, which BCBAs just make me nervous because I'm both and they're kind of a tough crowd sometimes. And the person that was talking said a term that I did not know. They said ASR. You know, we use ASR in all of our courses. And I just acted like I completely knew what that meant. And then I Googled it and it's active student responding. Well, I do that too in my webinars and in my classes and help me find my voice, but I don't call it that. You know what I mean? So I think automatically that that kind of when we're talking about building that bridge between speech therapists and BCBAs, that that's one of the things that I think people really struggle with is even just the terminology. And we ethically actually as BCBAs, we have in our ethical code for BCBAs that we will not use jargon, like we will not use the term manned and we will not use the term tact and echoic unless the audience and the people that we're with are BCBAs or they're like you, an autism mom who feels really comfortable with those terms. And I think it's just because of that. We can have that communication breakdown. And then when you're sitting somewhere, I don't know about you if you've ever, if you've ever felt that way and you're like, oh my gosh, I do not know what that means. And I feel really defensive right now. I hope no one has me to comment. You know what I mean? So, so that's great to know that that kind of helped with enlightening some of that. Because I think when you get a report, I don't know, do you ever work with any BCBAs? as a speech therapist, like in your district or not so much? We have zero. Yeah. Zero. Okay. So sometimes you can read a report and you might think, well, I don't really know what that means. And then it's a whole thing about trying to understand those terms. So that's great that that was helpful for you because there are some, just the BCBA tests and evaluations, if you're using the VB map or the ABLES R, they do have those words in it, like manding and tacting. And if you come across a report like that, it could be really helpful for your information for intervention, but it can be hard because we may not know what those what they mean by those things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I try to explain that to parents too, not using the terms exactly, but when they'll say, well, you know, he talks all the time. And right. then when you start looking into it, well, is he repeating what you said or is he using it to communicate that that's something he wants and trying to explain that there's there's a difference. And I, that was one thing that I love that I feel like using those terms in my head explains that so much more. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So I know we've talked about parent education. What? What? How do you think if you're working as a school-based SLP or if you're a clinical-based SLP, how could we you know, help support our parents? What are some things that you've started maybe implementing in your practice as an SLP, now being in the autism world and seeing how that parent education is so helpful? Are there any things that you've been able to translate into your own practice as far as parents and what's been able to be helpful for that? I try to offer parents like face-to-face. Before we weren't doing Zoom, now it'd be so much easier. But I've had several kids who were recently diagnosed and they didn't get the diagnosis until they came to school. And I immediately call them and say, do you want to come in and talk? I want to know the things they like. And, you know, I'm not going to be effective if I have zero toys they're interested in. And just to kind of realize that they're a kid and we still have, they might have a diagnosis, but we still have to address the things that they like and and what are they going to be interested in and what do the parents want to see? Because my goals might be way different 
from what theirs are. And that goes back to me not knowing their whole day. I see that 30 minutes once or twice a week, but what are they struggling with at home? So yeah, I feel like before I, before I had kids in general, I was maybe the person who was, you know, you sit here in the waiting room and I'll take your kid back and we'll work. And now I would most definitely be the therapist that says, nope, come in. I want you to see what we're doing. And if you have questions, ask. Right. Yes. Oh, I love that. If you have questions, ask. That's great. I love that. Just to open up that ongoing communication. I'm sure a lot of parents are really, really welcome that and are just, even if they don't take you up on coming in, they really probably really appreciate that. I mean, I know I try to do that in a very small way. I try to email every parent on my caseload, which is really kind of hard because sometimes you have a lot of kids, but I want them to know, even if I don't get an email back or, you know, they might just write back and say, hi, I do think I people appreciate the reaching out and you being open to answering questions and being there. So I think that's such a great, great idea. Well, and it's just so overwhelming too. Your child gets a diagnosis and you're basically handed a report and see ya, good luck. Mm -hmm. So I'm just very big on that personal connection too of, you know, hey, just send me a message and we'll talk about whatever. Yes, that's great. I'm here for whatever. That's awesome. We've unpacked so much great information. I love all of this talk. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us into the autism world. I know that's going to be impactful for a lot of people listening. So what do you think is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to another professional or parent about working with autistic students? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) And I've even had time to think about this and I (laughs) narrow it down. I think the biggest thing is just that they're still your child and... They might need a little bit of extra help, but that's okay. And it's also okay to fight for that if you need it. I know a lot of times, like I said, you know, you get a diagnosis, but no real direction and where to go. And you might have to look and call and be that mom who's annoying the office that you need an evaluation or you need therapy. Be that, be that person. And as far as advice for a therapist, hmm, oh, that's tough. I don't know. I think maybe just realizing that there, sometimes it's so easy to just focus on, I have these goals, one, two, three, four, five, I have to work on these. And sometimes it's more about that connection and just having fun when you're together. And Mm -hmm. those goals, everything is going to fall into place if they're having fun and they're enjoying their time with you. Absolutely. I love that. That's so great. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have do you have a website or an email or anything that you could share if people want to find you and ask any kind of follow-up questions? I know that we'll have your information in the show notes too, but is there anything you want to share with people as far as if they want to reach out with any questions or just to say like, thank you <laughs> for sharing your journey? Um, my email address is darstslp at gmail. And I also have a Facebook page. I don't always use it a lot. Sometimes I do. It's um, the SLP mom or you message me there. Awesome. Thanks so much. Make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.